Let us pray. Our most gracious God, draw near once more and implant your word deep within our hearts and enable us to more and more receive your gifts, to receive your salvation, to receive your renewal and redemption within us, that we would know you more deeply as you have known us. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. So here we are. We're at the second Sunday of Christmas, the second Sunday following Christmas Day. We don't get this every year. We don't always have two Sundays following Christmas. It's kind of nice to have this extra Sunday in here. Apparently, when I was looking for our leaflets on our ACNA website, they don't have a leaflet for second Sunday of year B, which is the year that we're in right now, and I had to chuckle about that. But all the readings are the same except the first readings. The Old Testament and New Testament and the Psalm are the same for all three years, so we can get away with that. But here we are. And the second Sunday of Christmas is, for me, a little unique because of the passage that we just read from the Gospel. Here we have, in our prayer book lectionary, we have an option of either just reading the coming of the Magi or reading about the flight to Egypt. I wanted to read both to let Epiphany creep in some but to remind us of the destruction that Herod wrought in light of his discovering that there was another king who would be greater than him. Had I been thinking more coherently this week, I would have hung up our third banner that has the wise men coming and worshiping Jesus. Just to even more emphasize this creepiness of Epiphany onto the second Sunday of Christmas because it's just a couple of days away. Today's the third and Epiphany is on the 6th of January. It's coming up 12 days, the, thir the 13th day after Christmas, or the 12th day after Christmas, however you're counting. Because there are 12 days of Christmas that we celebrate Christ's birth, and here we are continuing that celebration of Christ and who he is. And Matthew, St. Matthew, makes it clear of who Jesus is in this passage. He says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and wise men came from the east, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This troubled everyone, that there was a king who was born, and that it was Jesus. They didn't know his name yet, but we know his name. And we see how everyone responds to him in different ways. And the reality is that Jesus is the king of all, whether our flesh wants him to be or not. Jesus is king of all whether our sinful side, whether our sin nature, whether we want him to be or not, he is the king. And we see this most greatly displayed, this reaction of disgust, this reaction of anger. We see it clearly in Herod. As we go through this passage, we see Herod slowly plotting and planning. If you know who Herod the Great is, you know he is a horrible man. He may have done some pretty amazing things as a king. He set about a 46-year building project on the temple, improving and building it up. He kept the country he was over under control for the most part, which is pretty amazing considering that's where the Jews were, and ever since Rome had come in, they had always been pushing back against being a province of Rome, against being a territory of the Roman Empire. They didn't like it, even if it brought some semblance of peace around them. They didn't care for it because it was another king ruling over them that was not 
a king from Israel. And Herod the Great wasn't a king from Israel. He married into one of the families who had been ruling over Israel, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. He married one of their daughters, one of the daughters of that family, in order to have some claim to the kingship. But he was really descended from Edom. And so it was an insult to the Jews to have this Edomite, this man who is descended from some of their mortal enemies, ruling over them and reigning over them. But beyond that, he was even more cruel and disgusting. This man, out of his own paranoia, killed most of his children, killed some of his wives, just because he thought they might try to take the throne from him. He killed his own sons to prevent them from trying to take his throne. This man wanted nothing more than to be king. He wanted to rule over Israel. He wanted to be in place and to remain there no matter what it meant. And knowing that background, when he heard these things, he was troubled that there was a king who had been born to be king of the Jews. And Jerusalem with him because people were hearing the rumors that these strange men from the east had come, these magi. And no one understood what was going on. And no one really understood where they had come from. All they knew is that they had come from the east, and we to this day have no clue where they came from. That word magi that we use for them sometimes, or wise men, it's a rather broad word. It can mean anything from being a scholar, an intellectual, a priest in some religion, to an astronomer, all the way over to to being an astrologer. Because in the ancient world, astronomy and astrology were pretty intertwined. So to be one is to be the other. Because they saw the stars in the heavens as being connected to the things here on earth and the things on earth being connected to the stars in heaven, that it was all of one piece working together. And that as an event on earth that was important happened, it would be reflected in the heavens. And if an important event happened in the heavens, then there must be some important thing happening here on earth because they're intertwined, they work together. It wasn't fate causing these things to happen. They had different explanations for why, but there was an interconnection, and we could say, because God is in control of all things. He can make things happen in the heavens to reflect things on earth if he desires to do so. It's not superstitious to notice an event in the heavens and to wonder, is there something happening on earth that we should know about? Is there some event occurring that is under God's control? And these magi were men who had apparently been studying the stars for years and years, and somehow they saw something in the heavens that caught their attention and led them to the land of Judea. We do not know what this star is, what it was. Back in December, you heard about the Christmas star, the coming together of Saturn and Jupiter in the sky, getting closer than they have been in hundreds of years. Though you could still see a difference between them and the heavens if you looked at it right there above the southwestern horizon there at the end of December, it was quite magnificent because there, it did create a brightness that isn't normally there with those stars. They were brighter than usual because of their intersection in the sky getting closer and closer together. In fact, I noticed on some nights that you could even see them already shining before the sun had set. But was that the Christmas star that the Magi saw? We don't know. It could have been. It could have been some conjunction of the planets in the sky, but usually I don't know how long that would necessarily last. 
But either way, they saw something that led them to go to Judea. And where did they go in Judea? They go to Jerusalem. They go to the place where the king resides, assuming if there was a king born, he was born at the palace. But they get there and there is no king who has been born at the palace. And instead they find another king, one who is greatly troubled and distressed at the hearing of a king being born. And he assembles the chief priests and the scribes and asks them, where is this Christ to be born? Where is this Messiah to come from? And they, flipping through the scriptures, looking through it so quickly, discover that it's in Bethlehem of Judea. According to Micah, it would be in Bethlehem, who is by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Out of Judah, the birthplace of the great King David, one of his descendants would one day come back to rule over the people of Israel and would shepherd them. And over in that passage in Micah 5, it continues to go on to describe this ruler in great ways, describing him as one from eternity, one who would rule perfectly and properly, describing him as someone somewhat otherworldly from any human that you could imagine. But here they focused in and just wanted to identify the birthplace of this new king that they did not want, that it would be in Bethlehem. And so Herod summoned the men, the wise men, the magi, and sent them on their way and told them, when you find him, come and get me so I can come and worship him as well. Saying that as sincerely as possible, I'm sure, for the wise men didn't think anything of it. They went on about their way, and as they left, they saw the star. It reappeared to them. Which leads me to think that this is no natural phenomenon, that the star was there even though it says it never disappeared, but it says just with the fact that Matthew says that and it reappeared to them and led them. That it seems that there's something special about this star. That it's not just a mere heavenly body, but is a great body from heaven, possibly maybe an angel, a messenger of the Lord leading and guiding them mysteriously with just simply the light of the glory that he has as an angel. Leading these kings, these magi, these wise men to find Jesus. And here, these wise men, when they find him, they bow down and they worship him, seeing him for who he is. But what do they find? Do they find a king in great splendor and great abundance? No, they find a poor carpenter's son with his mother in a house living there in Bethlehem, a no-name town just outside the regions of Jerusalem. And there was the child, we don't know how old Jesus was at this point. We know he had to be under two years of age. Some say he was a year and a half. Some say he might have only been six months old and that Herod was overcompensating by going after all the two-year-olds just to make sure that he got anyone who could possibly be king. But nonetheless, he was less than two years old. So Mary and Joseph had stayed in Jerusalem or stayed in Bethlehem after the census. They had remained and taken up refuge, taken up a home there. Joseph being a carpenter, that would be easy to do. Just go start building and put out a shingle that you're a carpenter in town and that you can repair and build things and people can come to you and you can work, get work that way. And he can take care of his family and provide for them. But here, what do these kings bring even though they see this son in a destitute state? They still worship him as a king. They worship him as a god. And they bring treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They give him great and glorious gifts that are worthy of a king and even of a god. 
Gold, one of the most precious metals in the ancient world, and even to this day, frankincense so often used in temple worship as incense burning in worship before the Lord. When you hear of the incense rising up to the heavens like our prayers, our prayers being like incense, it's frankincense that they're usually picturing there is that incense. And myrrh, a perfume often used for burial, to anoint the body, to prepare it for burial, to prepare it for entombment. These are costly gifts given to the king. Costly gifts that carried on the flight to Egypt, I'm sure, would have provided great abundance for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They would be able to travel and move around easily as they needed to. And there they are. Yet again, another confirmation that this son of theirs is unique, is different, is someone that is beyond what they could possibly expect. Knowing he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, knowing that Mary was a virgin, that he is a special, unique child. And here are Gentiles coming from some other part of the world to worship their son. What must Mary and Joseph have thought of that moment? Having just a while, little while before had the shepherds come and worship and going out and telling the people of this king born and resting in a manger. And now three strange men maybe, or more or less. We don't know how many wise men there are. We just know there are three gifts and there could have been three wise men. There could have been 15 wise men who made the journey. And here they come and worship their son who is the God of all, who is the king of all. But they didn't go back to Herod. They hadn't suspected that Herod was up to no good. They hadn't suspected that Herod would mean harm if he came and discovered this child. But the angel came to them and warned them to not return to Herod. And so they found another way out of the country. And they left and went back to the east, wherever it was they had come from to begin with. And the Lord, knowing what Herod had planned, that his flesh did not want Jesus to be king, that he was going to come and try to kill Jesus, he warns Joseph to rise and flee to Egypt, to stay there until the Lord tells him to return, because Herod wants to destroy the child. Herod hates this child. He doesn't want him to be king. We've seen first that there was adoration of this king from the, from the wise men. We see that there's hatred of this king from Herod. He despises anyone who could possibly usurp his throne. He despises Jesus without knowing a thing about him. Not caring that he is the Messiah, he simply despises him and wants him destroyed. But the Lord, being gracious, warns Joseph to flee with Mary and the baby into Egypt and to hide there until Herod is dead, until Herod is done away with. And what does Joseph do? He immediately gets up and he flees and he takes his young family to Egypt to stay there until the Lord tells him to return. And he was there until the death of Herod. And that was, as St. Matthew says, to fulfill the prophecy out of the Egypt, I have called my son. If you ever take the time to look that passage up, you'll discover it in the book of Hosea. And it's about the history of Israel. It's about the people, the nation itself, being called up out of Egypt, being called from their slavery, being called by the Lord in redemption. It's not about the Messiah. It's about all the people of Israel being brought up out of Egypt and away from 
their exile of slavery from the land. But here, St. Matthew takes it and he applies it to Jesus himself, which begins telling us a hint of Jesus is more than an ordinary man. He's already been called a king, and here we discover that Matthew is saying Jesus is Israel itself. Jesus is the true son, the true Israel, the one who will do all the things that God had desired for Israel to do, that Jesus will be the son who comes up out of Egypt to accomplish the will of God in the land. Out of Egypt I called my son, and he went there to escape the hatred of a king, the son of God coming out of Egypt later in his life to avoid the madness of a king who then goes when he discovers that the wise men had tricked him, that they had mocked him, that they had simply just avoided him and left a different way. Herod is furious. It makes sense a man who is so paranoid, who is so out of control, who is so controlled by nothing but his passions and not any sense of intelligence except, and as much as that intelligence plays into his passions and into keeping him king, he sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two years. He kills the innocent children who have nothing to do with this king, who are but young children, who are but babes. But out of his anger, out of his furiousness, out of his madness, he lays waste to them because of his hatred of Jesus the king. He kills untold numbers. It's unknown how many actually died. Bethlehem wasn't a large town. It was just a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Some church fathers giving numbers as many as 12,000 up to 144,000 are, are being a little exaggeratory. They're going out of their way to try to bring some biblical other numbers to it, to bring some symbolic numbers to it. 12,000 being a number of representing the perfection of Israel in some way with all 12 tribes times a thousand, times a thousand or the 144,000 as we hear about in the book of Revelation about the 144,000 sealed with the Spirit. They're, they were looking for numbers that they could attach biblical significance to. But the reality is, is may have been less than 100 children because no one even mentions this event. Herod did all kinds of horrible things, but this one doesn't get mentioned. And I think maybe it doesn't get mentioned because they're just like, it's him killing a bunch of babies. That's not really out of that ordinary, out of, the, out of normal circumstances for Herod. It's another horrible thing that he did, but it's not really that important compared to a lot of the other horrible things he's done. And so it doesn't get recorded except here in Matthew, this slaughtering of the innocents. But we as a church remember, and we recall it every year, we remember the holy innocents. We have a feast day just a couple of days after Christmas for them, to remember them, to recall Herod's slaughtering of the children, to know that they died on account of Jesus. And so we recognize them as some of the as a type of martyr, who being Jews, who being children of the covenant, were put to death simply because they were children, in order for a king to try to kill Jesus. They died on account of Jesus. And so the church remembers them and honors them and recognizes the madness of Herod the hatred he had for a king, the hatred he had for the Messiah. And to conclude our time here in this chapter, we have the return of the king. Who knew I was going to say that? 
The return of the king. Gotta gotta throw in a Tolkien notice there. The return of the king, the return of Jesus back into the land. Herod dies. And that's how we date Jesus' birth now. Recognizing that Herod died around 4 BC, we know that Jesus was probably born a couple of years before that. Born maybe in 6 or 5 BC. Herod dies and the angel of the Lord appears. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and calls him back into the land of Israel. To fulfill that prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. And what does Joseph do? He immediately responds again. What must it be like to be Joseph in this situation? To be told one thing, to be told another, to be told outlandish, crazy things about his betrothed, the woman he's about to marry. And what does he do in all those situations? He believes the Lord. He's told that his wife is pregnant according to the Holy Spirit, that she is conceived and has not become pregnant in the ordinary way. The Holy Spirit has caused her to conceive the child who will become the Messiah. And that Joseph is to name him Jesus. And so what does Joseph do? He keeps Mary as his wife. He keeps her as his betrothed. When danger comes to Jesus, the Lord tells him to depart and flee to Egypt. And what does he do? He flees to Egypt. He grabs what they can take and they flee by night to Egypt. As soon as Herod dies, the angel comes back and says, rise, go back to Israel. And Joseph does. He believes and trusts the Lord to take care of this special child, to take care of his family. And so he rises and takes the child and his mother and they went to the land of Egypt, but or to the land of Israel. But he hears that Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, is reigning over Judea. And Archelaus is about as bad as Herod. He follows in his father's footsteps with paranoia and power madness. And so Joseph isn't keen on going back to Bethlehem, to staying there near Archelaus, knowing that he is just as despotic as his father would be. And so the Lord comes to him in a dream and tells him to go to Galilee, and so they return back to Nazareth where they came from, according to Luke. They return back to the city of Nazareth and make a home there. And Matthew makes one last comment that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The return of the king bypasses Bethlehem and goes to a backwater place, to the most northern part of the land of Israel. And settles there to be raised in obscurity away from the throne, away from the palace, away from the temple. To be raised by his parents. To go to the temple regularly for Passover, to visit Jerusalem when the times would come. But here is Jesus, the king of all. The one who is king, whether we like it or not, whether our flesh wants him to be or not. Here he is being raised in an obscure place like Nazareth, that he might be called a Nazarene. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that explicitly says that he would be called a Nazarene, but I think it's about Matthew kind of looking at the full picture of all the prophets and them talking about the obscurity of the Messiah, that he will come, but no one will know him, that no one will recognize him, that no one will understand him to be, in, to be the king and to be up in Galilee, to be in Nazareth is a place of obscurity, and that that seems to sum up in their day and age that he would be called a Nazarene, that that's the perfect description of the obscurity, of the indifference, of the unknownness of the Messiah, to be called a Nazarene, to be called one from a place of worthlessness. 
As one of the soon-to-be apostles would say over in the Gospel of John, has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? People didn't like Nazareth. People thought it was just a backwater place that was of no use. It just had a bunch of hicks and hillbillies and people who didn't have any intelligence. It was a place that they disdained. And there is the Messiah being raised there in this place of indifference, in this place of obscurity that when he comes, the people would never suspect that he is the Messiah until they start seeing him do the very things that the Messiah is to do, the things that the king of all is to be doing on earth. And so we see multiple responses to Jesus as king in this passage. We see Herod's hatred. We see him try to destroy the king. We see the chief priests and scribes who understand scripture but don't respond to the call of worship. They're indifferent to the reality that the Messiah may have been born. They don't go to Bethlehem with the wise men. They stay there at the palace. They stay there in their comfy homes in Jerusalem. They don't pursue the king as the wise men do who have but tiny light, who have but little light of knowledge. And yet the Spirit leads them to discover Jesus and to worship Him and to bless Him and to give Him gifts and to offer themselves to Him. The Gentiles come, but the Jews remain silent to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the reality that the Gentiles were to come to Jesus, to come to the Messiah. The Jews will come too. There will be many Jews who turned to Jesus during his ministry and after his ministry. But here at the very front end, we see a bit of the fulfillment of what John says at the beginning of his gospel, that he came to his own and his own knew him not. He came to his own people. And those who should have been responding most quickly, the chief priests and the scribes who know the scripture, who know the Messiah is coming, should have been quick to respond and to go with the wise men, but they don't. Instead, those who are not his own come to him to worship him in this passage. They come and they adore him. We also see Joseph's stability, his carefulness and obedience, his faithfulness to follow what the Lord says. Jesus is his king and he is going to take care of him no matter what. He is going to go wherever the Lord calls him to in order that this king, this Messiah would be able to live and to bring about salvation, to bring about redemption, to bring about salvation for the whole world. So where are each of us on this spectrum today? Do we find ourselves leaning toward Herod, being hateful toward this king, our flesh despising him and trying to resist him and to push him away from us? If you feel that way, I call you to look to Jesus, to cry out, to slay that fleshly side, to put it to death that you might live that you might follow Jesus, that you might be united more and more to him to slay the flesh? Are you like the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests who know the scriptures and yet don't respond, who are hard-hearted, who are indifferent to the reality of the Messiah? Again, look to the Lord and pray to lift this indifference, to lift this hard-heartedness from you, to open your eyes more and more to the joy of the Messiah being here with us, that he is renewing all things, including me, including you, renewing the entire face of creation little by little, day by day, and we will all be made new one day. Or do you find yourself in the place of the Magi and Joseph, quick to listen, quick to hear, quick to rejoice? If so, rejoice, for the Lord is at work. Pray that that would not depart Pray that you would remain faithful in all that you do. 
Pray that you would continually offer up your entire self to the Lord to serve Him, to bless Him, and to be a blessing to those around you. To do as the wise men did for Jesus, to give Him the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. To give Him some of the most precious things in all of existence. To give of Him, to give to Him of your life. To rejoice that you can give it to Him and that He will renew you. That though you lose your life, you will yet live because you lost it for the sake of Jesus. May we all evermore travel toward that side of the spectrum, to evermore travel toward the side of where Joseph and where the wise men find themselves in adoration and worship and love and devotion to our Lord Jesus. May we find rest and peace in that place. And if we find ourselves in other places with the chief priest or with Herod, that we would recognize it quickly and that we would cry out for renewal that we would cry out for the slaying of the flesh, that we would cry out for the destruction of our old man, that he would be drowned by our baptisms every day as we return and lift ourselves by the Spirit's power and faith as we are brought up more and more and raised back to life. So may the blessing of the Lord be with us as we pursue Jesus. And may we find that we desire Jesus to be our King. In the name of the Father and the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Amen.